Let's get the heresy out of the way right up front. I've never been a big fan of Firefly. For anybody who's still here, <laughs> I do actually rather enjoy this film. I saw it in theaters, actually. And, uh... I mean, there's a couple points that I could critique, but for the most part, this is an extremely well-constructed film. It's funny because this film almost didn't get made, which is sadly typical for this kind of project. See... For those of you not aware, Firefly had the plug pulled because Fox is a bunch of idiots. And, I mean, honestly, how many series have they canceled that were good, that were doing well? Let's start with F. Anyways, um, it's, it's getting to be a trend at this point. But no, they, they canceled that, and he really wanted to do something to, to at least have some kind of concluding point. You know, he did a, a decent amount of build-up and establishment in Firefly, but he never actually did a lot of payoff because they were like, what, 13 episodes in? You don't do payoff that quickly. And he came, he went over to Universal and pretty much straight up begged. They were like, all right. And they introduced him to a woman named, I wrote her name down, Mary Parent, who at the time was in charge, and, and she, by total coincidence, happened to be a fan of Firefly. And so she said, all right. And a green light was lit. They didn't have much of a budget. That was one of the bigger problems they were facing, so they had to kind of finagle around that. There's a reason why there's not a lot of space scenes or really action scenes that don't involve Summer Glau. Um, this also is something I want to talk about, though, really quickly, because, well, the film... The film didn't make a lot of money. This is just a trend, isn't it? I just keep talking about films which are critically acclaimed that didn't really make a big box office return. In fact, it has been pointed out many times by many people that the biggest reason why we have not had a Serenity 2 or any kind of continuation of Firefly that is not in comic books is because of the fact that Serenity just didn't make that much money. <laughs> I don't know what to add at this point. I mean, at least with uh, Mad Max, it makes a degree of sense why people wouldn't go see it. Why didn't people see this? Well, unfortunately, the hard truth, at least this is presumed truth, I should clarify that, is that this is a bit of a niche, uh, niche show, niche, niche setting. You know, the verse is kind of its own thing. And the people who like it really like it. And they're over there. And there's just not enough of them to justify the kind of expense that usually going into this kind of thing normally would entail. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't. Quite the contrary. I actually think niche things should be expressed and developed and money should be siphoned away even at a loss in order to make sure we do that. Not just for variety in terms of investment or development and the fact that one of them might be the big hit, but also because of the fact that it's nice to have a bit of creative variety when it comes to our fiction. But all of that being said... We're probably never getting any kind of film continuation at this point. I mean, it's it's been a while. It's also worth noting, though, this is also something interesting. I've heard a lot of people say that Joss Whedon's a big name in Hollywood, and those people are wrong. Or at least, to be more slightly accurate, they were wrong. See, Joss Whedon has been a big name amongst fans for a long time because, well, because he's a fan. I mean, I mean, we could argue the whys and the wherefores, but it is my strong opinion that the reason Joss Whedon resonates so well with so many people is because he's a geek, just like we are. I don't know about you guys, I tend to embrace people who are geeks. You know, fellow geeks, I suppose I should clarify that. There's a reason my own interests align with so many others. It's because, you know, I'll, sports, yeah, football, hell yes. You know, video games, sure. Films, absolutely. TV, uh, you know, you got it. Doctor Who, I could talk about that, you know. 
Whedon is just like that. He is a geek of a huge number of things, and he loves it. And I think that's why he resonates so well with us. But, but that's not the same as having, having political clout over in Hollywood. Now, I've talked about this a few times. Um, let me pull up my notes here really quick to make sure when this is going live relative to everything else. I'm kind of doing this out of order, not really on purpose. I'd make a joke about Firefly here. But there's a film... Ah, yes, so there's a film coming out that I'll be talking about next week, which I've actually already recorded the video of, called Cloud Atlas. This is another example of what I'm talking about when it comes to star power. So keep this in mind when we get there, because star power... Political clout is a big thing in, in Hollywood. And sometimes particular directors or sometimes particular actors have the strength of just being that well-known and that well-connected to make things happen, even if the financial side of things or the concrete side of things or whatever isn't really there. It's, it's, you know, this is one of the reasons why passion projects usually tend to happen in filmmaking because you know, that at particular actor or that particular director wants to push for it and a lot of people want to work with that person or, oh, that person favors or are willing to do what they say. Political cloud, very simple, right? Joss Whedon had, and I'm using past tense here on purpose, no political cloud in Hollywood. And that was a problem. Because the man is, in my opinion, a legitimately talented director and writer and producer. And basically, he's a good mainliner. He would make a good mainliner. Now, that being said, I don't think he's perfect. I don't worship the ground he walks on or lick his boots. But the man is very talented, and it would be ridiculous of me not to acknowledge that. Someone like that should have the clout to make things happen. And he does now because of Avengers. I know that's kind of a controversial thing to say, because there are plenty of people who stub their nose up at superhero films in general, and Avengers in particular, by thinking it's it's overblown and all about the But the sad reality is Avengers pushed Whedon up, politically speaking, in Hollywood. And now he has clout. But when this film got made... <sighs> the only reason this film got made was because one woman who had clout, who had financial backing, happened to be a fan. So, I'm going to say something else here, which is probably going to be a weirdness for, for some of you. I think this film does one thing very well, and that thing in particular is the fact that you don't really need to have watched the show to get it, right? Like, it's not necessary, is what I'm trying to say. You could still go through this just fine, having never seen the show, and still enjoy it and still get most of the, the character beats and setting points and backstory points. They do a decent amount of exposition, mostly in the beginning, during the credits rolling sequence, during the two shots that have been spliced together for the seem seemingly seamless shot, in order to showcase you know, who, who the main cast is, what their perspective is. And we get a little, bit, a little bits and pieces here and there throughout the rest of it. Inferences about the war, uh, the nature of the alliance, the nature of exactly what's going on in the verse, where they are, all that kind of stuff. Which brings me to my very first thing that I absolutely love about Firefly. It's actually my favorite thing about Firefly by far. It's system-centric. Uh, that sounds like a dumb way to say that. It's set within a single star system. Now, that's a brilliant move. Uh, I, I could obviously point out the problems with FTL, but doing that makes this film extremely believable. Very grounded and very... Well, honestly, I'd go with realistic, as weird as that may sound. Very little, if none, of the technology that they showcase in this film is something that we couldn't have in real life, other than the simplicity of the space travel. That's it. And even that space travel is very down-to-earth and very normal. Again, no FTL. Or if it's, no, not not what we normally think of as FTL. Obviously, they can traverse the the universe. Excuse me, the universe, the verse, the system relatively well. 
it also means that what we effectively have is the wild frontier in space. Which is actually a very good blending of genres, in my opinion, and I think one of the other reasons why a lot of people like this franchise. So, we've got the Alliance. It's the first thing I want to talk about, setting-wise speaking, because I look at the Alliance, and what I see is a whole lot of good and a little bit of bad right on top. Imagine a really, really delicious, amazing cake that has a layer of pure garbage as frosting. Now, that sounds like a strange analogy, I'm sure, but if you're looking at that cake from the outside, well, obviously you can kind of tell why it is that cake would look, why you just look at it as a pile of garbage. Oh, that's disgusting. So it's very understandable why most people look at the Alliance as the big, evil, tyrannical thing, because all we really see is the garbage, right? More to the point, though, on a more thematic level, uh, one might even call it an ideological level, that garbage is going to taint the rest of that cake one way or another, right? I mean, how willing are you going to be to eat that delicious cake inside of that garbage? <laughs> right? I mean, this isn't a hard analogy, and that's why I bring up my point. That there's plenty of good in the Alliance, and they do plenty of good, and, well, then there's that. And the implication that it just taints everything. Mal himself says it pretty much straight up. At some point or another, someone else is going to get in their heads to do this again, and we're going to have a much worse problem than we did last time. There was a point in the film during the first uh, heist, basically, where they try to rob the Alliance military's, you know, cache of, of funds and whatnot. Cash. The cache of cash. <laughs> I, I can't talk at all today. They, they were trying to rob that cash, and I had to stop writing down quotes. There's, this, this film is just too quotable. There's too many different things that I could quote from this that are just enjoyable or funny or amusing. I have to admit, Whedon has a particular humorous style when it comes to his writing. Um, some people just call it the snarking. And if you like it, you like it, and if you don't, you don't. It's, it's really critical to walk into any film written by or developed by him and know if you like the snarking, you're good, and if you don't, then you're not going to enjoy it as much, because it's basically everywhere. That being said, I've always felt that Whedon has a bit of a talent as a director as well for pulling out, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, good dynamics between actors. Because if you sit and look at it in the face of it, some of these actors don't really have a lot of good chemistry with each other, but they still manage to gel well. And for lack of a better way to put it, they basically start to fake it. And that's one of the things I, I, I bring that up for. Anyway, so... Let's talk about the operative. Yeah, um, the operative... <sighs> the operative is probably the most interesting character in this book, for, in this book, God, in this film for me, uh, by Chiwetel Ejiofor, excuse me, stumbling over the pronunciation there, uh, who is a great actor. This is actually the first time he actually came onto my radar personally as an actor, because this is the first time I'd ever seen him do anything, and I've been kind of following his career ever since. He's not in a lot of films I really comment on, but I like him every time I see him. You know, he's one of those actors. Anyways, Mr. Ejiofor really <laughs> does an excellent job of someone who is simultaneously non-threatening and incredibly dangerous. And it's something that not a lot of actors can really pull off in the same way. You know, you get called into a mob boss's meeting, and he's all nice and polite, and, and then finally he says, all right, now rip off his legs or whatever. That's a different type of threat than what this man is. Because the operative, by all accounts, is fully willing to be reasonable, to actually talk this out. I firmly believe that if Mal had just handed over River, that would have been the end of it. All right, job done, moving on. That being said, 
he notice he escalates almost linearly. Alright, go after him. Alright, go after the ship. Alright, go after everywhere he might be. Okay, go after everything he might try to connect to. And that's actually an interesting thing about the operative as a concept, because the operative is in... You can kind of tell how it's the final step for the Alliance. You can also see how the Parliament would be sufficiently upset about this possibility. What's funny is, the implication is very strongly is there, that they're not afraid of Miranda specifically. That there's, they're just sufficiently afraid of whatever secrets, military or governmental, that might have been passed on through uh, accidentally or otherwise to her that, uh, no, they have to call it an operative. Because an operative is loud, an operative is messy, and an operative has absolutely no jurisdiction overwrite. They can do anything to anyone for any reason. That's the point of the operative. Yeah. And, of course, they have this person who is, let's call him what he is, a true believer. Someone who is absolutely forthrightly honest about the fact that I am going to create a better world that I will have no place in. Kind of amusing in parallel to something I talked about back in Mad Max, which I'm pretty sure happens before this. Gosh, check my notes. This is the problem with doing all these films out of order. I do all of them connected because all these films do have connections with it. Okay, so the Mad Max rumination has gone live already. As I talked about Mad Max, the idea of both Max himself and uh, Furiosa being characters who are damaged goods, who are horrible, terrible, well, who have done horrible, terrible things, and nevertheless are the people who feel like they are capable and willing to do that to shepherd and bring in the innocent to a better future. And that is the operative. Now... And that leads to my first question. I know I'm jumping way ahead, but at the end of the film, the operative decides to call off everyone, and he decides to say, nope, damage done. There's no reason to go after this anymore. My mission has effectively concluded in failure. And he, of course, has become what Mal is trying not to be, but we'll get to that in a minute. I bring this up, though. I've heard some debate about why. Why do you think it is that the operative called everything off? Now, the most obvious answer is... This, the, the answer I just gave, damage done, moving on. I don't think that's true, though. I think that the operative saw... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. I'm trying to, I think that the operative saw the extremity to which they were willing to go. And, no, I'm saying that wrong still. I think he saw what Parliament's vision was of a perfect future. And he was repulsed by it. The operative was repulsed by it. In other words, he really does legitimately believe in making a better connected, you know, universe, right? And he is willing to, as he himself says, kill children. You know, Mao says, I don't murder children. The operative says, I do, if I have to. Ends versus means. It's the undercurrent theme throughout this entire film. The ends justifying the means, or whether they do or not, and all of the gray that exists in that gulf. Because... I think the operative firmly believes that if he has to murder and kill and destroy in order to accomplish these ends and then die, that that is acceptable. But two things to add on to that. First of all, I do think that he has legitimately allowed himself to drink the Kool-Aid a little bit too much. That he has become so wrapped up in his own arrogance and his own presumption that he cannot see any flaws in his perspective or his approach. Second problem is the fact that, well... I think that he believes in a paradise, but his vision of paradise is what most people would probably think of when they say that. A nice, clean, safe environment, no crime, no war, no, 
you know, murder or rape or any other horrible, terrible things. Just a nice future for people. He does not think that the passivity thing is paradise, and he definitely doesn't think the Reavers are. Subtle little point, by the way. There's actually quite a few times in which the film goes out of its way to show how the operative is bothered by Reavers. Now, that makes sense. Any sane person would be bothered by Reavers. But that's my point. It would be easy to play someone like the operative as detached, truly sociopathic, truly disconnected, doesn't care about anything, just ends justify the means purely. But he isn't, and they don't. He, he is repulsed by the Reavers. And, of course, the first and only time when he really loses his cool is when he sees the Reaver fleet oncoming through the, through the nebula. <laughs> Jesus. Ugh. But, yeah, the very idea that they have caused the Reaper threat... See, this is the final point. This goes beyond ideology and into the realm of pragmatism. Okay, the Alliance caused the Reaver threat. Why haven't they fixed it? And I think that's what's going through the operative's mind. As he sits there and as he calls everything off and as he turncoats, the Alliance knew this and has known it for about 12 years and has done nothing. That they have allowed the worst possible perversion of Paradise to exist, the Reavers. And they have done so willingly and knowingly. That's not Paradise. And that's not a cause that he is willing to believe in, which is the most obvious and, and dominant theme throughout the film. What you believe in, and what that thing happens to be, and why you believe in it, and the extent to which you believe in it, and all that fun stuff. God, where do I go next? Mal is probably the next best character to talk about. Um, note that right off the beginning, they kind of establish his leadership skills, as he has a, a natural talent for getting people together and getting them to do things. He's also very, very good on his feet. He is extremely adaptable and knows how to think quickly and think dynamically. He also has a lot of experience by virtue of being not only ex-military, but ex-commanding military. And someone who, as was pointed out, volunteered, signed up, said, yeah, no, I will totally fight what I believe to be a good cause. Now, the Battle of Serenity, which is mentioned a few times in the film, again, you don't need all the backstory, but what we get from it is that Mal walked out of that Kind of exactly like the operative walks out of the end of this film. Which, of course, makes you wonder exactly where the operative would go, if not for the fact that Zoe probably kills the operative in the future in the comics, but let's not get into that. Point being, Mal walked out of this an empty shell. And by this, I mean the battle. He walked out of the Battle of Serenity, and there was nothing left. He didn't believe in anything. He didn't try anything. He had his crew. He had Zoe. That was about it, really. And... Over time, he just kind of slowly tries to garner some kind of meaning to his existence, and he just sort of fails miserably. He tries with Anara. That doesn't work. Although, side note, I love the bit where they're like, uh, uh, Kaylee is like, well, maybe she just honestly wants to see you, you know? And he says, did you, did you see us fight? No. Trap. But um, <laughs> you could tell he tried with Anara, and it didn't work. And if I was to be blunt, forgive me for psychoanalyzing a little bit here, I would say the reason he failed with Anara is because he wasn't a person yet. Instead, he was just an empty shell. Nothing to believe in. Now, I st keep stressing that word because I'm actually completely with Book on this one. Why do you always think I mean God when I say what you believe in? you got to have something core, central, centric to your very essence and being to decide who and what you really are. 
you got to have a baseline. I've talked about that this year, too. If you're going to deduce something, if you're going to build something, if you're going to have something, you have to have a baseline. And that's your belief when it comes to people. So what the hell does Mal believe in? Now, you could say it's honor and decency, but honestly, I would say it would be more accurate to say that Mal believes most strongly in the right to choose. And I phrase that very specifically, because freedom is a more vague thing. No, he specifically wants the ability to choose, good or bad. And he wants to make sure that everyone knows what happens when you try to take away the right to choose. Hence his determination to go ahead and show the truth of the Miranda experiment to the rest of the, the verse. One of the other things I like about Mal, though, is that he manages... Well, first of all, there's his play by Nathan Fillion, who is awesome. But also... I mean, I don't, I don't say that casually. Nathan Fillion is probably one of the most likable actors I've ever uh, had the fortune of seeing off camera. Unfortunately, I've never met him. I've only met like three or four actors in my life. Nobody knows about me in my tiny little corner of the internet. But I have a feeling he and I would get along. But more to the point, he also knows... He knows his stuff, right? He is also, to put it as bluntly as possible, a geek. And he embraces that, and he knows it, and he works with it, and it works very well for him. But in his portrayals, he knows how to portray someone who is more than one thing. And I know that sounds like such a strange thing to comment on, but I do like his presentation of someone who is a fully three-dimensional character. Someone who is uncertain, someone who's talking, someone who's acting, someone who still has a conscience, tries to ignore it, can't really help himself, knows how to be callous and cruel, knows how to be cold, knows how to make the cold calculus harsh decisions, and hates himself for it. <laughs> you know, loyalty. There's this great bit where someone asks him, why'd you bring him back on board? And he can't even give a straight answer to that. He probably doesn't even know. <laughs> Zoe, of course, is an interesting contrast to him because she... Well, she has a lot of the same hardness, but she is a lot softer. But I don't mean it like that. I mean that she has a lot more of the moral certainty. She has what she believes in. She believes in you know right and wrong and decency and honor and, and stability and all that fun stuff. And if I am to be 100% blunt, I would say that's at least partially because of Wash. No, I'm not saying a woman is dependent on a man. I'm saying that a person is dependent on the, their love that the actual legitimate and very wonderfully natural love between her and him is what helps to stabilize both of them. In other words, <laughs> in other words, he helped her to climb out of that pit. Put it to you that way. And you can kind of tell how at the end of the film, well, her, she's not good. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I wasn't even that attached to the show, and I still got choked up when... Wash died horribly. I guess he didn't die horribly. He actually died very quickly. Just... Yeah. Um, you can tell she was gone. Just completely gone. There was a certainty of emptiness. Like you're just looking at a shell of what used to be Zoe right there. And it takes quite a while for that shell to finally break down. And even when it does, we don't actually, the film kind of ends, so we never really see the full context and consequence of that. All we see is that, well, she is now in the same position of all of the characters I've been talking about so far. You can kind of see the recurrent theme here, can't you? This is the third and final theme I intend to talk about. The theme of people and what happens to them, how they become after going through hell. Mal went through the Battle of Serenity. The operative went through the film, Zoe lost her husband.
and also went through the film. Yeah. And you could say that it applies to all of them to some extent or another. River is, of course, the most obvious example of that. Someone who was literally broken by people who were deliberately trying to retrain and reprogram her because, well, because there's garbage on the top of that cape. cake. And River, of course, manages to pull herself out of it to decide who and what she wants to be by acknowledging her place and her position. And... It's funny because River's probably one of the few people who, along with Mal, really decides who and what she believes in and how she wants to go forward. I mean, obviously she's not never going to be truly be you know, perfect, but she's all right. And that's got to feel strange for someone who's gone through as much as she has. I actually don't have much to say about River other than that Summer Glau is awesome. She actually does a pretty good job of, of of acting in general, and of course she manages to be incredibly badass. I'll, I'll talk more about that scene in a minute, but what I want to talk about next is, of course, Simon. Simon's an interesting one, because Simon has already... Simon's belief is established in basically the, the first scene in the film, when Simon helps uh, River to escape. Because, and there's this great quote, and I wrote it down here. It, oh, apparently I didn't write it down word for word, but he, uh, you know, uh, the operative tells the scientist, he's a madman, he threw away all of his career, and, and he threw away all of his fortune just to save this one person, and the operative says, no, no, look, look at his face. That's not madness, that's love. And a far more dangerous thing, that is. <laughs> um, yeah, you can tell that Simon has already decided what he believes in. And he does cling to it quite a bit. Funnily enough, he also kind of expands that by the end of this film. He has basically abandoned everything for the sake of his sister. Something I can understand very well. And by the end, he admits that he hasn't really had a lot of chance for anything other than that. So I'm sure he and Kayla are going to have a lot of fun in the near future. I like River's face. Mm -hmm. But um, regardless of that, or irregardless if you prefer, what I like to think is that... He's one of the most found people in this film, along with Wash, actually. I would say Simon and Wash both have found where they are, what they are, and what their purpose is. Thus, they serve as nice contrasts for the more empty people who are searching for purpose. And I keep using the word purpose, but I should probably use the word belief, because the film uses it tons and tons. And I, I don't think I ever noticed. This is actually my fourth... No, this is my third time watching this film. Um, no, it is my fourth, because I watched it with... Anyways, um, I watched it with person I'm not going to name out loud. Bob, but uh, I never noticed before how often they repeat the word belief in this film. Good Lord. Now, I'm, I haven't, I've kind of skipped over a couple of characters. Uh, Jane, Kaylee. Funny thing is, they, they, they're kind of played as tertiary characters, and yet both of them are fairly critical to the overall presentation of the film. First of all, Jay, uh, Kaylee is someone that is absolutely invaluable when it comes to a circumstance like this. You have a good mechanic, and I mean a good mechanic, that is absolutely invaluable in these circumstances. More to the point, though, Kaylee, obviously... She's leaning more on the moralistic side of things. Obviously wants to help people and take care of people and you know not murder and pillage and destroy. But at the same time, this is why she serves as an interesting contrast to Jane, because both of them actually are in agreement on a lot of points. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jane is probably one of the more interesting characters uh, of the of the you know the the non main characters uh, Simon uh, Kaylee and and Jane, and I mention that because Jane isn't a bad person. 
I know that sounds so strange to say that, since Jane is definitely not a good person. But that's my point. Jane himself is the one who gives us the dialogue about exactly who and what the Reavers are, for anybody who never saw the show. As I mentioned, you don't really need to. And Jane is the kind of person who... Well, he's just in a bad circumstance. He lives in the verse, and he doesn't, you know, gel with the way the Alliance does things, so he's out here on the rim, and he deals with things on the rim the way you deal with things on the rim. He is selfish. He is, he is focused on survival and what, you know, matters to him, which is himself. But at the same time, he's not horrible. He's not cruel. He's not callous. He doesn't want to take advantage of circumstances. In fact, the one and only thing he does in the entire film, which even drifts in that direction is when he decides to go and take River and just get rid of her in order to save his own hide. That is as close to evil as he gets. And I know several people would qualify that as such, but when you compare that to the level of callousness, maliciousness, and avarice that we see in so many villains in fiction, he's not even on the same page as that. And in fact, there's several moments he gets across where it's like, look, this is great and all. I mean, I, props to your brother. What you've done for her is awesome, and I honor you for it, but that's not our problem. Right? I believe in good and right and all, but it's not my deal. And it's just causing me issues. And Jane brings up the interesting point himself. I don't think he meant to, but he does bring up the interesting point. How many of the rest of your squad got out of that battle? And this is a comparison to an earlier statement Mal himself made to Zoe. Zoe said, once upon a time, back in the war, we wouldn't have left anybody stranded. And Mal's response is, maybe that's why we lost. In other words, the idea that maybe idealism doesn't, doesn't fly in the face of reality. And then, of course, that's what Jane hits him with in the face. Maybe your idealism was the problem. Funny thing, though. Again, it's not like Jane is evil. It's not like Jane doesn't acknowledge what, what good is or what you know trying to have an idealistic aspiration is. In fact, he's the first one to sign up towards the end. I, I love his quote. Shepard always told me, if you can't do something smart, you better do something right. It's a good quote, by the way. Anywho. <clears throat> so, let's talk about the Reavers. I don't like the Reavers. I'm just going to start with that. I think they are a incorrect inc inclusion into this setting. That's just my opinion. And I will go ahead and say that one of the biggest things I have never liked about Firefly or Serenity is the Reavers. I probably don't have to explain why. Anybody who knows me of any level, you know, even if you just watch my show for you know today or whatever, you probably can understand why I don't like the Reavers. That being said, they do serve a fairly normal narrative purpose. They are Darkspawn. Or stormtroopers, or Nazis, or zombies. This is a very common uh, gameplay tool, but also a narrative tool. They are acceptable targets, is actually what that's referred to as. In other words, you don't need to feel bad about doing anything to an acceptable target because it's an acceptable target, right? You know, you shoot a Nazi in the face, who cares, right? <laughs> you shoot, you know, a stormtrooper in the face, nobody even bats an eyelash, right? You all oh, know I chopped down a dark spawn. Yeah, you get my point. But narratively speaking, they also serve as black. Now, I've talked about this as well over in Dragon Age Origins. That's why I started this comparison by calling them Darkspawn. Because black serves a very important narrative point. When you have black in the background here, 
it makes everything else come into more relief. Contrast is what we as human beings perceive most. So if you have something that is absolutely just the worst in the background there, then you could see everything else as, as you know, the more nuanced shades that they happen to be. Now, I, again, still think the Reavers take it too far. I think there would be plenty of ways to accomplish this without turning them into that. <laughs> also, I'm, I'm not even talking about how the Reavers reproduce, and I really got to put that in quote-unquote. Let's, let's not even get into that. Uh, anywho, <clears throat> let's move on. So I'm looking at my notes here. Um, I'm, I'm not going to comment on a few specific scenes. There's a lot of good flow and a lot of good uh, statements, uh, a lot of good character stuff. I do like the cameras in the, the bar area they go to. First of all, the fact that they're always recording. Nice touch. Even out here on the rim, you know, they're always recording, always keeping watch and stuff. And the implication is there that the Alliance has a degree of control over that as well. Even though the Alliance does not directly control the rim, they do passively control the rim, leading to situations like this, and having to, you know, get the woman to f use her fans to block that view, for example. But, of course, it also shows the, the amount of effort and expense that the Alliance is willing to go through at the behest of the operative. It is implied, although never outright stated, just how expensive and difficult it was to push out this subliminal signal out to basically everywhere, just to try and, and see if she got a glimpse of it. Very smart, actually, but horrifying in its own right. And that's also the first time we get to see, what in the film at least, what River is actually capable of, aside from, he's the one who's about to be a hero. I do note, by the way, that the first move that both Mal and Jane make is to try and assist the situation rather than, you know, deal with it in other methods. So they go and some stuff happens. The operative goes after Inara. Inara basically ends up joining the crew immediately following this. But I bring that up because the, operative, the, the first interaction between the operative and Mal is very interesting. Obviously the two characters contrast each other by how similar they are or perhaps slightly more accurately, how similar they would have been if they'd met a few years' difference from each other. But I bring this up because the operative asks a wonderful question. You can't win! What is your goal here, Mal? What's, what's your point? Like, where are you going with this? Do you imagine that you're fighting some big war? Because you tried that and it didn't work, so I'm not sure where you're going on this one. And the funny thing is, he is absolutely correct. At this point in time, Mal has not found his purpose or his belief. He's just kind of flying blind based on whatever implications of decency that still happen to exist within him. After all, he does bring River right back on board after the incident at the bar, without even hesitating. Thing is, that's exactly the point, isn't it? The operative basically gives Mal the answer. He just doesn't really know it. He instead is there to operate in good faith. So you, you surrender and we're good. Okay. And again, I do firmly, firmly believe that the operative would have been like, okay, we're done here. At most, he might have killed Mal and, and uh, Inara. And I know that that sounds like, oh, oh gee, all he's going to do is kill two people. But at the same time, that is as far as that would have gone. Situation done. Rivers come in. We're good. Clean it up. Remember, he is not here to be callous or cruel. And I know that sounds like such a strange thing to bring up, but I want you to picture how many films you've seen in your life where they have had a scene that's called the establishing the bad guy scene, where they kick a puppy, right? 
I mean, they don't literally do that, although that has happened in some films. But, you know, they do something evil to show that they're evil, to show that they're cruel. <laughs> right? Even good films do this. So it's nice to see someone like the operative in contrast. But anyways, I'm getting off my topic. So he basically gives Mal the answer. You have to fight the Alliance. But you can't fight them directly. <laughs> so Mal goes to talk to River. And it's funny because he opens up with her in a way that he probably hasn't with a lot of people. She has a gun on him at the time. So, you know, there's that. But he says this thing, are you anything but a weapon? I have put a lot on the line in the belief that you are something more than a weapon. I like that, because you could say that Mal believes in the decency of human life or whatever, and that's possible. I mean, again, the man definitely does have some moral and ethical backing. But what I find more interesting there is that what he's seeing is that she is more than a weapon. Because a weapon does not have a choice. And that's what Mal's really believing in, right? The right to choose. A weapon, by definition, does not have the right to choose. Forgive me for quoting Metal Gear Solid 2 here for a second. You know? A weapon gets to fall asleep when the hens laugh, right? They don't get a choice. And that goes antithetical to everything that Mal truly believes in. Thus leading to why he is so willing to go for this far. Because if she's a person, well, then that's okay. <laughs> So then there's that wonderful second co coordination. I don't murder children. I do. And then we see Mal actually angry. He had an inter interaction with Inara earlier where Inara says, you know, I've seen so many sides of you, I don't know which one this is. He says, if you ever see me go to war, you'll see something new. We see Mal go to war in this one. We see that he is, he is truly, legitimately angry in a way that he's never been, I would say, before, even in the show. Just my opinion. Because... Like it or not, after the death of Book and after the realization of what they've done, he now sees what he believes in. And I've already told you it, of course, but it's the same general thing that made him sign up for the war. He never stopped believing in it. It's just his belief led to failure. Now, I'm going to ask you a personal question, and I do not expect anyone to answer this, but how many times have you in your real life, have you had something that you truly believe in lead to failure? I have. And there's nothing to explain it. There's no words in English to explain what that feels like. It, it, it scathes you. It sears you. There's nothing left. Now, I got lucky. I had a really wonderful, amazing family. And I had you guys to help me drag out of that pit. And I never stopped actually believing, believe it or not. And neither did Mal. It's just... He was wrong. Well, no, that's putting it incorrectly. It's just that he was not yet successful. And that's a really interesting thing to think about. Because Mal didn't fail. The war? No, that wasn't failure. That was the opposite of success. Or rather, lack of success, if you prefer. Failure would have been abandoning. Failure would have been turncoating. Failure would have been quitting. Failure would have been dying. But he didn't fail. Fail is a final state. There's nothing past failure. Instead, he simply had not yet succeeded. This film is about Mal rediscovering the will to continue trying in spite of a lack of success. So then he goes to war. 
And he starts doing some horrible things. Anybody who knows me knows I'm kind of a ship guy, right? We talked about this in Mad Max. I gotta be honest, if I had my own personal ship, my home, which I don't, but you know, if I did, the idea of stripping up these these people who I knew who were my friends and I cared about up as corpses and painting it red and screwing it up would really bother me. Probably make me throw up a little bit, to be completely honest. Maybe make me throw up a lot. That is horrible. But of course, that gets across just how much Mal is now determined. This is... gloves are gloves are off at this point. Gloves are completely off. So then they go and they find Miranda, the empty city, and this is the most horrifying part of the film. Thirty million people, thirty million people, and they go to this empty city of corpses. No perforations, no no gun wounds, no discoloration, nothing. Just a whole lot of dead people. And it is just as horrifying as it should be. I've actually talked about this as well recently, the difference between something that is a horror genre and something that is horrifying. This is horrifying. This is everything that the Reavers are not. This is just... Whoa! Yikes! Imagine if you can... Well, I shouldn't go into that. One of the side effects of clinical depression, as well as situational, environmental depression, I've talked about both before, is that you uh, lose the will to do. You lose ambition, you lose motivation, basically. Now, usually that doesn't go to severity, to extremity, but that's effectively what happened to all these people. A true, massive, extreme, in the most classical sense of the word extreme, case of depression, to the point where they didn't do to the point where they basically just dehydrated to death. <laughs> That's horrible. And uh, by all accounts, this is speculation at this point, efforts were made to undo this, to fix this. I mean, this is a slow process, right? People stopped going to work. People stopped, you know, coming into suit. People stopped eating. You know, it's, it's kind of a step process. It didn't, it didn't just happen. So people were studying this and trying to figure out how to fix this. And they couldn't. Well, that's okay, because that's, that's where the Reavers come from, too. Yay. Nice, th nice touch, by the way. There's a bit where things I don't want to describe happen on camera, basically. And when I say on camera, I mean off-camera, actually. They never show it. Thank God. Thank you, Whedon. You're not God, but thank you, Whedon, in addition to God, for the fact that they didn't show anything on camera. I don't think I could have stomached that, based on what the Reavers do. But it was recorded. That is something that was that, that happened in universe. All of the characters involved either can't see or literally just turn it off, shut it off. And I point that off because that is a very natural, very human reaction to that. I imagine most people who are seeing that being blazed on every screen in the entire verse probably had a similar reaction. But there's one person who didn't. The operative forced himself to watch. You notice that? Forced himself to. He's probably used to it used to enduring the bad, to put it in simplistic terms. He's the kind of person who would kill someone and then watch them die, in total contrast to another character I've talked about recently, Dr. Mann. And that's all I'm going to say about that, because I don't want to spoil anything, but you know what I'm talking about if you watched my review, or excuse me, my rumination uh, last week, I believe. I'm not going to pull out the calendar yet again. <laughs> but I point that out because the operative is definitely the kind of person who would force himself to watch as someone dies to basically to endure it as a form of penance, to not shy away from it. 
I'm not going to shy away from what I must do. I acknowledge that it is terrible, but I am still doing it. So he watches, unblinkingly. Yeah. So then Wash uh, dies. Yeah. Um, Zoe. And what's interesting is the film... The, the film takes a, a fairly typical, in fact, I would go so far as to say archetypal, or archetypal if you prefer, uh, tone shift here. Because what happens is they start on the, you know, they have the quiet horror, the realization, the plan. You know, the, the build-up, we're going to go do this. Then they have the action, the action. The action is immediately interrupted by Wash's death. Now, what would normally happen in a standard film is the action sequence would land until the final boss was defeated, and then the tone would be brought back down. Instead, what happens here is there's a breather period, a breather chapter in this usual tonality shift here. Because everything follows the same exact thing until Wash dies. The tone immediately plummets, just like that. Everything is grim, morose, dark. Um, Kaylee is hit. Simon is hit. River's out of commission. They're being pushed back. Uh, everything is bad. And it's not action-y bad. It's just plain bad. This is a, you know, things might even go, go worse from this point. Then River says, this is my turn now to protect you, which is awesome scene, by the way. And that's when the tone goes right back up to the final conflict, which is the tone that we were in prior to Wash's death. So we, we take this breather period in between the two, and then it finishes out in a more classical fashion with her destroying the ever-living crap out of the Reavers, Mal succeeding in sending out the message, and a film. This was a treat to go back through again, I gotta admit. There's a lot of details I never really noticed before. Just out of curiosity, how many of you would legitimately want to see Whedon continue with this if he had the, let's call it the backing to do so? I know the comics did their own thing, but I still think there's more that could be done with this verse. And I still think there's a lot of different side stuff they could continue forward in. And I, I don't know, I, I just think it would be interesting to see where they would go next. But for now, I leave you with what we have. See you around, guys.